On December 11, 1970, Apple releases John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. It takes the critics by surprise after his other solo efforts. It has no title on the cover, just a pastoral picture of John and Yoko sitting under a tree. On the same day, Apple releases Yoko Ono Plastic Ono Band. During this period, John had been going through Arthur Janov's primal scream therapy. We're all gone, you know. I mean, Christ said the kingdom of heaven is within you. And that's what it means, you know. And the Indians say that, and the Zen people say that. It's a basic thing of religion. We're all God. I'm not a God or the God, God, not the God. But we are all God, and we're all potentially divine and potentially evil. We all have everything within us. And the kingdom of heaven is nigh and within us, you know. And if you look hard enough, you see it. Welcome to this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chan. I'm John Stone. So, John, well, first off, uh, we want to thank Darren Murphy for showing up with us the last two weeks. Uh, Absolutely. He is so much fun to talk to. Although we did have a couple of points we wanted to clarify from those shows. Uh, we were talking about uh, John and the uh, the vocal on Mother. Yes, it's not the whole vocal that he redid every day. It was just the screaming that he did every day. Right. So we, we you know, we, we weren't certain of that. We were trying to figure it out. It's seamless. <laughs> they may be different takes, but it's seamless. And then the second thing is that you had asked the question of when did the, the dream is over come up in God? Right. I was interested because, you know, it seems to kind of sum up the whole point of the whole album. And so he speaks to the dream is over, which was kind of like, this is what I get got out of therapy, that it's over. And so when it was added, it wasn't part of the original song. It was the, you know, the last thing he wrote. I had the idea, God is a concept by which we measure our pain. So when you have a, a word like that, you just sit down and sing the first tune that comes into your head. And then I just rolled into it. I don't believe in magic. And I could have gone on. It was like a Christmas card list. You know, I thought, well, where do I end it? Beatles was the final thing because I no longer believe in myth. I don't believe in it. The dream's over. I'm not just talking about the Beatles is over. I'm talking about the generation thing. The dream's over, like, and we got to get down to so-called reality. From what we have in the set, the demos are all ending with, I just believe in me. Right. But the first studio take we have does indeed have the dream is over. Although, again, it's not nearly so dramatic. You know, he's just singing along and then, okay, he just sings it at the end there. Yeah. So that that would seem to be added, probably like Darren suggested, he, he came up with that one day while he was just driving into studio from Tittenhurst. That would be a perfect explanation, you know. It's not long. So, it's It could have, you know, knowing, hearing a lot of the demos that John does over the years, you know, he'll do little pieces and uh, that could have been a, a beginning of a song in itself. It may very well have been. It may have been something that he that he had been toying around with or just, and then it's like, oh, wait a minute, I can stick this here. Yeah, the, right. I'm writing a song called The Dream Is Over. Wait, no, I've got, it's just a verse. You know, when I've written over the years, it's really common to just, the, that first verse, oh, it's so good. 
It's the second verse that's the really hard one. Well, of course, then that's Paul's M.O. It's like, I'll, I'll write the first verse of a bunch of songs, and then I'll discover that they all just go together seamlessly. Right. That's a great writer, way to write. Elvis Costello talks about his, his notebooks, you know, that he just has stacks of notebooks. So he never starts with a completely blank page. He can always go and go, oh, okay, I'll start with that. You know, some idea that he jotted down. It must be weird to be sort of sitting around and have Elvis Costello there and just writing things down in his notebook. Apparently he does that. You know, he'll have a conversation with somebody and somebody will say something. It's like, hold on a second. And he'll just pull a notebook out of his pocket and write that down. It's like, I like the way you said that. Right. You know, hearing things that other people say take you out of your own head. And so it, they're great inspirations for, for writing. When I first came into work with Paul McCartney, I had a song called Veronica. And Paul just, you know, he, he saw what I was trying to do and he helped me do that because he knows about the way, hmm. you know. And then the next songs we got into were a bit more of a dialogue mm-hmm. where we would just get a, some sort of starting point, a, a turn of phrase, the usual ways you start songs. Somebody will say something, oh, that's a title. And then we take it from there and what's the story then? And then we throw it back and forward like, like some sort of tennis match or something. So we're now over a month into this. I think we're we're finally going to be able to uh, hit the end of this, the John Lennon plastic on our band box set, because there's uh, we've got other things coming up before too long here. Yes, and as much as I like it, I'm glad to to move on because <laughs> there's only so many times I can say I like that or <laughs> or well, that's well, it. We, we do we've got a little bit more than that this week because. Uh, <laughs> We got four separate discs worth of the the outtakes and the raw mixes of the outtakes, the random raw mixes, and then the elements mixes. <laughs> right. But I will say in that regard that the first song of the elements mixes is probably my all-time favorite new thing, new way to hear something from the Beatles or this artist, it's just, it's so moving. It's the acapella version of Mother. It's the vocal. And, it, and we get pretty much the whole vocal, yes. unlike some of these other elements mixes where they sort of cut it off and go into something else. Right. And the throat-shredding ending, which goes on and on, when it's removed from all the instrumentation, my heart is in my throat. When I listened to it, it was just like, oh, my God. Mama, don't go! Daddy, come home! This isn't what had became, became that heavy metal screaming, you know, that people would do over and over. This is this primal screaming. It caught on tape. It's just amazing to hear exactly i mean you compare it to what robert plant was doing there is no comparison no not at all (laughs) they're not even the same thing and i mean you know john likes to say that it's just rock and roll screaming so pain and screaming was before janoff but i mean even you compare it to twist and shout he was shredding his vocal cords but not in quite the same way. Right. He screams from the soul. It was a shout. He screamed because he was losing his voice. But the, the, uh, the mother screaming at the end, I don't know from personal experience what primal therapy is. You know, they talk about screaming, breaking, you know, breaking down to your primal self. But that stuff was harrowing. One day they brought cameras into one of the sessions and we just walked out the room. Because even under daddy, I'm not going to be filmed. Yeah. Especially rolling around on the floor screaming, you know, look, I like to perform, but I don't like to shit in public. So then he started berating us. Oh, some people think they're so big that we're not filming them. We just happen to be filming the session. Who are you kidding, Mr. Jan? Mm-hmm. You know, you happen to be filming the session with John Lennon and Yoko Ono in it. That's the difference. We're not doing anything special because you're here. Oh, you ain't. You didn't get on the plane and jump over and leave everything to come and cure us, right? Because that would have been a big scoop. The same as Maharishi Blue is cool, too. 
So what happens to the daddies that get famous people is the famous people either succumb completely to the daddy and then they, they promote the daddy. We're like catalysts, either the Beatles or John and Yoko, catalysts, the daddy always blows their cool because they can't contain that eagerness for power and glory. And he and he had learned from Twist and Shout because, as we were just mentioning, you know he he did a take a day, but he did that take at the end of the session. It's like you know I know I'm not going to be able to do anything after I try the screaming. <laughs> right. You know I remember there was for a while the, the talk was that McCartney did I'm Down and Yesterday all in the same day. Although I think I've read since then that the vocals weren't cut the same day. Yeah, I think he just did scratch vocals on the day he did yesterday, although because, not yeah. 100% certain on that. I can't see him doing the screaming on I'm Down and then and then do the soft thing on yesterday. The Oh Darling thing, that was apparently first thing in the morning. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, he'd come in, you know, take off his coat, do a vocal. Nope, that's not it. We'll wait and we'll, we'll try another one tomorrow. Right. Well, so they clearly had different work, working methods. <laughs> okay, so we're not going to talk about everything. We're, we've already talked about the two takes of My Mommy's Dead more than enough times, so, so <laughs> we're not going to talk about that this right. week. All I can say is, my gosh, there are that many versions? <laughs> <laughs> two of them. Two, two whole <laughs> versions, yep. But they're repeated six times. My Mommy's Dead is the painful thing. It, it helps to say my mummy's dead rather than my mother died or, or my mother wasn't very good to me and Yoko's have, has the same problem only our mother isn't physically dead. A lot of us do. We have sort of images of parents. We never get from them, you know. It doesn't exercise it. Bang, gone, the spirit's gone. But it helps. All art is pain expressing itself and people don't like to see that reality, the, the, the suffering. I think Sean got a little bit too enamored with the idea of each set of discs is going to be representative of every song on the album and the three singles. It's like, he didn't really have to do that. No, uh, it goes back to what we talked about a couple of weeks back, which is, you know, the monetary thing is kind of weird. You could have put out as impacting a record or a set and not had to put that many CDs in it. What we're hearing now is we're hearing rumors of, uh, of all things must pass, which was a three record set and it's going to be across five CDs. So fewer CDs than what we're getting in the, in the plastic Ono box. Right. Well, George was much more humble. <laughs> I know a lot of this stuff from all things must pass has already come out as far as demos and, well, a lot of the Plastic Ono stuff has already come out in the past. I would say it's somewhere around 40 to 50% new material. Not counting new mixes, of course, because everything is remixed. Right. The music business is business. Decline promised the Ruttles that if they let him take care of their royalties, they would never have to worry about money again. So let's see. Give Peace a Chance across the versions that we're looking at here. I think that's probably the song which is best represented going from the demo all the way to the finished recording. Right. You clearly can see uh, the evolution. We get the raw mix, which is, you know, John's single track vocal. Then we get the raw mix of the outtake, which is John double track vocal with, with the Krishnas flown in. And then you get the the finished outtake, and then you get the finished version of the song. And, of course, part of that is because that's all there is. The overdubs were relatively simple, trash cans and Krishnas. One thing I will say here is, despite the fact that the book tries to convince us that both the raw mixes of the outtakes and the raw mixes of the final versions are unoverdubbed, that's not quite the case. They've done some fixes to the genuine uh, raw mixes. For example, the first couple notes of Love were flown in from another take. And what they call the raw mix of Working Class Hero has John's fix in there already. Right. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. But, I mean, that goes back to what I was just saying about, for whatever reason, Sean decided, okay, I want each disc to be representative 
of the whole and at least be a decent listening experience to the people who are putting this in their player. And, you know, I guess that is a good thing, but tell us that. (laughs) I agree. The point of some of these releases clearly are not meant to be just casual listening experiences. You know, that's what that first CD is. That's the record. Of course, we're also talking about this particular work of John Lennon's, which is anything but casual. But that's what most people will listen to. You know, when you're at a party or or a gathering, you don't usually slip in the CD of the raw studio mixes. No, and of course, that's why the cheap version, the version that people will go into their, uh, well, Amazon, I guess, uh, it only has the disc one and disc two. You get the finished disc plus the singles, and you get a disc worth of outtakes, which which could conceivably be listened to in a reasonably casual fashion. I guess that's really what I'm getting at is like you know, given that. So basically, if if that's the commercial release, let's say, then the other things are for the more studious of us Beatle fans, you know interested in details so if you're going to change versions to make this record then they should give us all that information yeah exactly i mean you know and what it says in the liner notes is that the raw mixes are the takes that were selected to make the final masters in their original form unedited and without overdubs well <laughs> it is not the overdubs that John did at the time, but you have manipulated these takes. Right. Again, that's back to Dylan. Dylan, he said, I don't care. I'll you know put them out. That's the bootleg series. We'll put them out exactly as they were on the bootlegs, which is a representation of the raw studio tapes. Whereas what Sean seems to have decided here is, okay, I want each of these to be listenable. It's nice that you can put a disc on and listen to it all the way through, but I think I would have rather had like two discs chronological again, like the get back stuff. Okay. Let's talk about some of the uh, other things in the, the isolations in uh, the elements mixes. And unlike imagine, of course, in, with in the imagine box, you had a bunch of elements to present. So, you know, you got like the unadorned orchestra, you got John's vocal and then you got typically like a backing track. But here, it's not the takes that you get on the final record. Right. You do get elements, but these elements are on top of a different take of the song in some cases. Right. So so are they elements or are they evolutionary? <laughs> They're almost kind of a hybrid. You go all the way back to the anthology and talk about, you know, hybrids and... But they, they seem to have kind of moved away from that Frankensteining. Uh, what you get in the Beatles boxes are reasonably complete representations of what's on the tape. You know, they're no longer sort of mixing and matching out of two different takes or, or flying in the end of uh, the record just to make the song complete. It's going to be interesting because I think in the All Things Must Pass uh, set coming out, you're going to have somebody else in charge, and that'll be Danny. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how his philosophy goes with that sort of re-release of odds and sods. Absolutely. Uh, so I wanted to go through some of the things. You, you already mentioned Mother, and yes, the isolated linen vocal on Mother, that's easily one of the highlights of the box. Yes, they need to play that on the radio. That would be just amazing. That would be something. Unfortunately, where are you going to play that other than the Beatles channel on Sirius XM? Okay, play it there. <laughs> if, if that's where it's going to start, then fine. But that is such a great thing that, you know, why is it Sean pushing that? Because that's one of the things that stands alone as kind of a unique 
piece of work. And similar to that, John's vocal on Love is, you know, just him and the guitar. That is very beautiful. Yes, it is. What I find interesting is then it goes from there in the piano and... Piano actually serves as a counterpoint to John's vocal. John's vocal is light. It's almost like And I Love Her or something. And then the piano sort of brings it down a touch. It's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that. Particularly the way they sort of bump the two of them right up against each other uh, on the isolation. Then, remember, can you tell me why exactly someone might use a, a jaw harp? You know, that was the question I was going to ask you. I was going, what the heck, that noise? And I've had to think, is it a harp or is it um, something going on in the reverbs? No, I think it is definitely a jaw harp. It's almost entirely mixed out of the final take, but you can still hear it. It has the charm of 
someone playing a rubber band. Right. And I suppose it is keeping time. It is. It's absolutely part of that feel. You know, when you're constructing records, a lot of times you don't really know in the beginning exactly what you're going to get. And so, you know, you start to build things from a basis, but maybe that was going to be the original sound of the, of the percussion. I'm glad they made the decision they did, but it's just weird to listen to. <laughs> right. And then it goes on past the, the 5th of November, and you the whole rest of the take plays out. Why are we getting that here in the isolations mix? Um, well, okay, great. <laughs> we get we get some piano. We get we get to hear Ringo's drums very clearly, and that's worth listening to. Yes, I, I guess as, as a, a Beatle fan or a fan of these people, if you had a chance to go through their tapes at the studio, yeah, you go through everything, and that's kind of what this is. You go through all the the tapes, and it may be just. Well, there's a little section of Ringo's drums that sounds great. People should hear that. You know, some of these things, there's one item that draws your attention, and and that's kind of it. But you know, it's okay. That's the study of how this was put together. On God, we get John doing a guide vocal. Uh, this is not not at all the finished vocal. I guess this is probably Phil from the original session. You know, he's turned the echo all the way up. That could be, but John is famous for liking treatments on his voice. Martin once said that he, you know, he would have an effect put on his voice so that he could sing to the effect. And I think that happens several times where he kind of patterns his vocal based on the effect. Maybe, and, and maybe he, he knew they were going to back off of it a little bit when he did the finished take. A couple weeks back, I uh, described the version of God in, in the Imagine John Lennon film where, where they did you know basically the same thing in a, in a fake 5-1 mix, and here you get that in stereo, and it's like, okay, I'm not <laughs> sure. Then we get a karaoke version of Cold Turkey. <laughs> yes. But a lot of times just listening to parts, that's a great listen, to listen to those guitars. Well, I mean, would you have rather had, you know, what, what people are doing and what we're sort of getting on the internet and on YouTube is, is these rock band deconstructions where you get the, the raw stems with just the drums and just the guitars and just the bass on a single track, which, again, goes against what Sean was trying to come up with, was making each disc listable by itself i don't know if i would have preferred to have some of that because he really didn't do much of that you know other than john's lead vocal and then some of the piano in some places yeah he could have fitted in a whole nother cd (laughs) no eight's not enough (laughs) i think i would have let the elements go a little bit longer because there is still some more room on this disc yeah you know, I would have liked to have gotten at least a little bit of the rock band style stems from the original tape. Just interesting, just hearing these. And the fact that each one of these toms, tom fills, are all different. The next step should be they'll release the music online in stems so that you could put it together and hear it as in toto. Well, well, McCarty did that uh, for at least four or five tracks a number of years ago. He actually had built, well, this is this was before the iPhones were that common, so this was on the web. He actually presented you with a player in four individual tracks, and you could do your own mix. Although, again, were they the real stems or were they doctored for the purpose of this web app that he had built or that he had had his people build. But but that was kind of interesting. 
Nothing is real. <laughs> so the raw studio mixes, you get some little things here. A lot of these takes just sort of stop. Right. Uh, yeah. There was a funny feeling to it. You know, John stops the take for one reason or another. Right. Just incomplete takes, basically. On Mother, uh, rather than the bells, he, he does the count in with his foot. I guess he had to come up with something. And he didn't just want to go one, two, three, four. It's like, but it's like, okay. Well, he could have had, he could have just gone bong. (laughs) (laughs) Love here is actually a a hybrid of, of two takes. They went and edited three notes onto the beginning of it. Because on the version we have of this on bootleg, Phil messed up at the beginning of the take. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> so they didn't tell us. Damn it. Well, well, well. One of the things I wanted to mention from the elements but mix but didn't, I like that shaker. You can really hear that shaker in the elements mix. You know, it's a percussion mix of well, well, well. It's amazing the variety of things that get put on this recording that I would have never guessed. You don't hear things so separated. They're mixed together. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, I didn't know that was there. It sounds so simple, but there are just tons and tons of overdubs. Yeah, there there are much more than you I ever would thought. have imagined. Right. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a more complex work that comes off as being a simple presentation, but it's clever. We get the same take forty-two, but uh, John has done some inserts to the lead vocal on God, and the echo is not quite so pronounced here. But you can hear the inserts, particularly if you're wearing headphones, the, the atmosphere around John singing just sort of changes completely. So are the sources all master tapes? Or are they mixed downs that he would have taken home? I think they did the same thing that they did with all the Beatles stuff. They went back to the original tapes. So this is not a mixed down version. And... I don't think John ever went over the eight tracks on anything here. Even, you know, we talk about these overdubs. Typically you had, you know, maybe three tracks, drums, bass, guitar. You had a couple for John's vocal. Uh, I, I would think he would have used more than that. Maybe so. We, we, get, we get two versions of, uh, of Cold Turkey. One where John's uh, changed, replaced his vocal on the first half. And then the other one has guitar overdubs on it. But his vocal on the back half is the same. He liked his screaming on Cold Turkey. Yeah. He switched out like the first 90 seconds between these two takes. Of course, you know, it's one of my favorite records. So. All I can say is I love this. I, I, I can hear it in any, any form. The guitar overdubs, that is really cool. And that's not something that we'd ever heard before. Eric is on this. Yep. And I wonder... Who's playing what? Because the way it's being played sounds very much like John. Yeah, I think they're both playing. I think they're, they are through some of it. You know, Eric is, I guess, the uh, feedback guy at the end. Yeah. Uh, although, I don't know. I mean, that could be John. <laughs> right. That's what, the thing about this record. It all sounds like both of them. Well, they were all four of them were good at imitating the styles of other people certainly themselves you know we talk about paul could play like ringo if he wanted to but john could sort of ape someone else's style or i'm thinking of the the birds like version of and your bird can sing they go out there and they could pick up the way other people play the instruments and then just duplicate it maybe that comes from their years as a copy band could be so instant karma we get a version with a lot of the additional overdubs. You get piano being played by George and Klaus and 
Alan White. <laughs> Hello, Phil Spector. The mix is pre-Wall of Sound. Yes. And John's voice is just, you know, John's voice straight through. Yeah, Instant Karma is really my favorite Phil Spector-associated record. I'm talking about the way he contributed to the sound. All that drenched reverb and the, the way the drums are presented, and that's Phil's thing. And that's just my favorite thing that he did. The rest of it, you know, as far as his recording of Imagine is pretty basic, just like on Plastic Ono Band. Most of the strings and things were recorded in New York. I don't even know what he had to do with the strings. Yeah, uh, you you have to love John uh, calling members of the uh, New York Philharmonic the Flux Fiddlers. Flux Fiddlers, yes. Right. (laughs) But yeah, that's just my, my feelings about Phil in regards to that record. I think he really added to it with his thumbprint on it. Instant Karma you're talking about. Yeah, Instant Karma, which is why he got the gig to do Let It Be. Well, and to a certain extent, that's why he, both John and George were to take him forward into the the early parts of their solo careers. Right. Because I don't think either of them were all that impressed with what he did on Let It Be, but although they didn't hate it. Yeah, I think that what he did on Let It Be impressed them from a record-making standpoint because they just felt so badly apparently about the recordings. I mean, I don't really know the story of that time because it just seems very movable how people were feeling. It was great. It was bad. It was good. And that he made a good record out of something that they thought was not good, I guess. Well, I, I don't know. There's another take of Instant Karma. We get to take five uh, where John's vocal is, is actually pretty hoarse. And at, at the end of it, you can hear him asking whether they, whether they got the take, and, and it's just gone. We're just checking, see if we got it. His voice was dead by that point. Yeah. Although, again, that may well be a couple of takes mixed together. That may be off of an earlier take, or even a take on a different day. Yeah, it would... If they're not going to tell us what they're doing, we won't know what they're doing. Exactly. So, all right, we got a little bit of time left here. We talk about the box. We don't have too many complaints. You know, no, we would have done things differently, but I think this is the representation of John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. Yeah. You know, for all that I said, if I was given the choice, would you like this or not? I'll say, yeah. You know, the chronology of the time. You know, people seem to put McCartney with Plastic Ono Band, but really Paul was off recording Ram during the time that John was both finishing and releasing Plastic Ono Band. Yeah, they're not really contemporary recordings. McCartney and and Plastic Ono Band. Yeah. Ram and Plastic Ono Band are recorded at the end of 1970. Of course, they were recorded on two different continents. Paul was largely recording in the States. Uh, in New York and Los Angeles, while John was doing things in London. Right. The other thing about Plastic Ono Band, not that it had any influence at all, but you know McCartney had already recorded it and released it. McCartney. Long before John even began to record Plastic Ono Band. Plastic Ono Band is kind of a response to what Paul did on McCartney. Right. That fight was coming. <laughs> When Ram came out. There's an uh, amusing story. So, you know, Paul's lawsuit to dissolve the Beatles went out on New Year's Eve on of 1970. Right. So all of that sort of went into court. And John, George, and Ringo submitted affidavits, which were essentially saying, oh, no, no, the, the Beatles are still an ongoing entity. Right. We've had disagreements, but we want to keep going as a business and a musical entity. Well, that's certainly what uh, Alan Klein would advise them to say. That was what their legal statement was. And then Paul just sort of came along into court and on the suggestion of his representation, you know, he said, oh, is, is that what they're saying? You know, 
that guy just put out a record and said, I don't believe in Beatles. <laughs> Drop the mic. Right. <laughs> so, you know, how much that had to do with Paul actually winning that lawsuit or not, I don't know. Well, that would be pretty pretty good uh, evidence, I would think. What do you, what do you think Paul was thinking around? I think... Uh, I think it'll probably scare him, you know, into doing something decent. <laughs> and then he'll scare me into doing something decent and I'll scare him like that. I don't think... Uh, I think he's capable of great work, you know. I think he'll, he will do it. I wish he wouldn't, you know. I wish nobody would, Dylan or anybody, you know. I mean, in my heart of hearts, I wish I was the only one in the world, you know, or whatever it is. But uh, I can't see him doing it twice. So the Lennon Twitter account is claiming that they are working on a sometime in New York City ultimate collection. Do you think that's going to happen? Probably depends on the sales of... Of this, I think that, um, yes, I expect it to happen. I would kind of think that they don't necessarily need to think about doing a 50th anniversary reissue. That That's sort of kind of one that they could pick up later. Maybe just start in on either the mind games or the uh, walls and bridges. And then, of course, rock and roll is going to take forever to deconstruct. Yeah. <laughs> um, critically and commercially sometime in New York City was never a hit no although it sold it just didn't sell in previous numbers that and the fact that they're going to have to redesign the artwork totally no one is going to carry a, a deluxe edition box set which has a, a a woman's a drawing of a woman's breasts hanging out, and woman is into the world splattered across in bold type. That would be the, uh, the interesting part of it. How one would deal with that song? Yeah, and I don't know. You know, they they're gonna have to put it on there, obviously. Well, for but- sure, and it, it's a valid point. You know, would you? Uh, Look at John's interview with Dick Cabot, and they explained where the use comes from. You kind of get it. But a lot of people aren't in any mood to get it. Especially today. You know, yes. For or against, we're in a very different place in 2021 or 2022. Absolutely. That will be the, the, than we were in 1972. It, it's weird. It's weird when, when you think that we're talking about an album with uh, sisters. Oh, sisters, a feminist position. It's a anti-authoritarian position, and it's just weird that it's all wrapped up in this thing that is not commercial. Well, and that and the fact that anyone who's not a Beatles person isn't really going to want to try and figure out what Angela or Attica State is actually talking about, much less luck of the Irish. Well, perhaps, but we've been discussing about what audience would buy an eight-CD set of this album. It's the people who want to hear that development of song. Yeah, I guess that's the question. You know, McCartney has shown that the audience for a deluxe edition is probably about 10,000. That is the number of sales that they base the price and the profit margin on. Right. I don't know whether sometime in New York City could hit that, but that's just my thought on the matter. Yeah. I don't know. That's not till next year, but I'm just surprised that be it Sean or be it whoever in the Lennon estate is actually answering. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're working on that. That you, you might see it next year. So, okay. So what's, what's coming up later in the year? We, next month we get the, uh, the six part 
McCartney Rick Rubin series on Hulu. That's right. I completely forgot that that was Kevin. We realized, you know, we were writing songs that were memorable, not because we wanted them to be memorable, yeah. because we had, we to, had remember to remember them. them. I don't know where what we're gonna get for the next McCartney box. We we still got the the last two Wayne's albums. Those have to come out to complete the set. London Town and Back to the Egg. We've not gotten deluxe releases of those. Right. They were saying Christmas, but I I kind of think he's gonna put that off until next year. I think he's probably gotten most of the money that he can from the various uh, McCartney three releases. So he's gonna be judicious in, before he. Goes to the well again. We are going to have some non-release-related shows coming up in the next few weeks. Yes, yes. I think we want to talk a little bit about Apple. And and, uh, and, and we'll, we'll let you hear some more of John Stone's ideas on things that are not new to the marketplace. <laughs> um, and I think um, coming up sometime down the road, I did an interview some years back uh, that you might be interested in. Yeah. uh, Someone that we are very familiar with. uh, uh, Someone who unfortunately is probably not going to be involved in any future Lennon archive releases. Uh, The, you know, Sean has taken over the mantle in charge of the Lennon ultimate collections. Well, I would have put it like, he's taken over the family business. (laughs) Beyond that, the Peter Jackson Get Back film and all of the associated Let It Be stuff. I suppose that when that film comes out, that'll be about six shows worth. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, well... Well, probably not at all at once. We'll we'll do a, a couple shows when the film comes out, and then we'll probably do at least two or three more shows once once the Blu-ray comes out. I would expect we're going to get all of that by the end of the year. So a little bit of breaking news on our way out the door this week. As expected, George and the Harrison estate did indeed announce an All Things Must Pass Deluxe 50th, well, 51st now, anniversary edition. It will be coming in a uh, 2CD, 3CD, multiple LP, 5CD and Blu-ray, and an Uber Deluxe box set. Well, all all the talk is about George's... Record coming out. Yeah. The yeah. 50th anniversary of All Things Must Pass. I've only heard like a little blip of it, uh, and that's the ad pretty much. And uh, it's real interesting. I, I'm looking forward to uh, I didn't realize that, that there were so many outtakes and so many things that we had done. Yeah. Uh, I remember they got the, the four knowns. And I don't know if they, I bet nobody knows this, what I know, George told me that they represented the Beatles, all four of them laying around doing nothing. Yeah, we did mention that one. Yeah, we talked about that one time, but, you know, <coughs> yeah, now they got, they got, I think they got little figure, you know, little figures, uh, figurines. Including and, George, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I'm glad I'm still around, you know, and I that, that was absolute clear time in my in my life, you know. I, I mean, I was surrounded by all of this incredible greatness, you know, Ringo Starr, <laughs> you know, Eric Clapton, George Harrison, Phil Spector, um, you know, um, Klaus Borman, you know, Alan White, I mean, just, you know, Carl Riddle, Jim Gordon, you know, Dave Mason, you know, uh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, I was aware of every moment. Billy Preston, of course. you know, and the two Garys, you know, I was aware of every moment. And Badfinger back there in the corner, I remember every moment. No, nobody, no one was at that session was uh, drunk or high or any of that. None, nothing like that. It was all business, buddy. I got to tell you, all business. Mal at the door, and he was looking after everything. Oh man, yeah, it was 
And nobody mentions the Hare Krishnas that came through. That's oh, they, that's interesting yeah, as well. That no one I hope they got them in the in the in the mix in the in the in the thing. Yeah, I mean, at any moment they may burst through the door. You know, big double doors. You know, throwing rose petals and peanut butter cookies and banging I mean, it those was, little it was so much bells more, and it was so much more interesting than just just recording. Yeah, it was an experience. It, there you go. The availability on the sets is listed as August 6th, so get those pre-orders in. We will talk a little bit more about that next week. See you then. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by J. Young Kim, Feaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. I think it's the best thing I've ever done. I think it's realistic and it's true to me that has been developing over the years from in my life. I'm a loser, help, strawberry fields. I like first person music. And now I wrote all about me. Just it's real, you know, and I don't know about anything else really. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.